Section 5 of Three Dialogues Between Hylas and Philonous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. Three Dialogues Between Hylas and Philonous in Opposition to Skeptics and Atheists by George Barclay. Section 5. The Third Dialogue. Philonous, tell me, Hylas, what are the fruits of yesterday's meditation? Has it confirmed you in the same mind you were in at parting, or have you since seen cause to change your opinion? Hylas, truly, my opinion is that all our opinions are alike vain and uncertain. What we approve today, we condemn tomorrow. We keep a stir about knowledge, and spend our lives in the pursuit of it, when, alas, we know nothing all the while, nor do I think it possible for us ever to know anything in this life. Our faculties are too narrow and too few. Nature certainly never intended us for speculation. Phil. What? Say you we can know nothing, Hylas? Hyle. There is not that single thing in the world whereof we can know the real nature, or what it is in itself. Phil. Will you tell me I do not really know what fire or water is? Hyle. You may indeed know that fire appears hot, and water fluid, but this is no more than knowing what sensations are produced in your own mind, upon the application of fire and water to your organs of sense, their internal constitution, their true and real nature, you are utterly in the dark as to that. Phil. Do I not know this to be a real stone that I stand on, and that which I see before my eyes to be a real tree? Hyle. No? No. It is impossible you or any man alive should know it. All you know is that you have such a certain idea or appearance in your own mind. But what is this to the real tree or stone? I tell you that colour, figure, and hardness, which you perceive, are not the real natures of those things, or in the least like them. The same may be said of all other real things, or corporeal substances, which compose the world. They have none of them anything of themselves, like those sensible qualities by us perceived. We should not therefore pretend to affirm or know anything of them, as they are in their own nature. Phil. But surely, Hylas, I can distinguish gold, for example, from iron. And how could this be, if I knew not what either truly was? Hyl. Believe me, Philonous, you can only distinguish between your own ideas, that yellowness, that weight, and other sensible qualities, think you they are really in the gold? They are only relative to the senses, and have no absolute existence in nature and in pretending to distinguish the species of real things by the appearances in your mind you may perhaps act as wisely as he that should conclude two men were of a different species because their clothes were not of the same colour phil it seems then we are altogether put off with the appearances of things and those false ones too the very meat i eat and the cloth i wear have nothing in them like what i see and feel Hyle. even so Phil. But is it not strange the whole world should be thus imposed on, and so foolish as to believe their senses? And yet I know not how it is, but men eat, 
and drink, and sleep, and perform all the offices of life, as comfortably and conveniently as if they really knew the things they are conversant about. Hal, they do so, but you know ordinary practice does not require a nicety of speculative knowledge. Hence the vulgar retain their mistakes, and, for all that, make a shift to bustle through the affairs of life. But philosophers know better things. Phil, you mean, they know that they know nothing? Hyle, that is the very top and perfection of human knowledge. Phil, but are you all this while in earnest, Hylas, and are you seriously persuaded that you know nothing real in the world? Suppose you are going to write, would you not call for a pen, ink, and paper, like another man, and do you not know what it is you call for? Hyle, how often must I tell you, that I know not the real nature of any one thing in the universe? I may indeed upon occasion make use of pen, ink, and paper, but what any of them is in its own true nature, I declare positively I know not. And the same is true with regard to every other corporeal thing. And, what is more, we are not only ignorant of the true and real nature of things, but even of their existence. It cannot be denied that we perceive such certain appearances or ideas, but it cannot be concluded from thence that bodies really exist. Nay, now I think on it, I must, agreeably to my former concessions, farther declare that it is impossible any real corporeal thing should exist in nature. Phil, you amaze me. Was ever anything more wild and extravagant than the notions you now maintain? And is it not evident you are led into all these extravagances by the belief of material substance? This makes you dream of those unknown natures in everything. It is this occasions your distinguishing between the reality and sensible appearances of things. It is to this you are indebted for being ignorant of what everybody else knows perfectly well. Nor is this all. You are not only ignorant of the true nature of everything, but you know not whether anything really exists, or whether there are any true natures at all. For as much as you attribute to your material beings an absolute or external existence, wherein you suppose their reality consists, and, as you are forced in the end to acknowledge such an existence means either a direct repugnancy, or nothing at all, it follows that you are obliged to pull down your own hypotheses of material substance, and positively to deny the real existence of any part of the universe, and so you are plunged into the deepest and most deplorable scepticism that ever man was. Tell me, Hylas, is it not as I say? Hyle. I agree with you. Material substance was no more than an hypothesis, and a false and groundless one, too. I will no longer spend my breath in defence of it. But, whatever hypothesis you advance, or whatsoever scheme of things you introduce in its stead, I doubt not it will appear every whit as false. Let me but be allowed to question you upon it. That is, suffer me to serve you in your own kind, and I warrant it shall conduct you through as many perplexities and contradictions, to the very same state of scepticism that I myself am in at present. Phil, I assure you, Hylas, I do not pretend to frame any hypothesis at all. I am of a vulgar cast, simple enough to believe my senses, and leave things as I find them. To be plain, it is my opinion that the real things are those very things I see, and feel, and perceive by my senses. These I know, and, finding they answer all the necessities and purposes of life, have no reason to be solicitous about any other unknown beings. 
A piece of sensible bread, for instance, would stay my stomach better than ten thousand times as much of that insensible, unintelligible, real bread you speak of. It is likewise my opinion that colours and other sensible qualities are on the objects. I cannot for my life help thinking that snow is white and fire hot. You indeed, who by snow and fire mean certain external, unperceived, unperceiving substances, are in the right to deny whiteness or heat to be affections inherent in them. But I, who understand by those words the things I see and feel, am obliged to think like other folks, and, as I am no sceptic with regard to the nature of things, so neither am I as to their existence, that a thing should be really perceived by my senses, and at the same time not really exist, is to me a plain contradiction, since I cannot prescind or abstract, even in thought, the existence of a sensible thing from its being perceived. Wood, stones, fire, water, flesh, iron, and the like things, which I name and discourse of, are all things that I know, and I should not have known them, but that I perceive them by my senses, and things perceived by the senses are immediately perceived, and things immediately perceived are ideas, and ideas cannot exist without the mind. Their existence, therefore, consists in being perceived. When, therefore, they are actually perceived, there can be no doubt of their existence. Away, then, with all that scepticism, all those ridiculous philosophical doubts. What a jest is it for a philosopher to question the existence of sensible things, till he hath it proved to him from the veracity of God, or to pretend our knowledge in this point falls short of intuition or demonstration. I might as well doubt of my own being, as of the being of those things I actually see and feel. Heil. Not so fast, Philonous. You say you cannot conceive how sensible things should exist without the mind. Do you not? Phil. I do. Heil. Supposing you were annihilated, cannot you conceive it possible that things perceivable by sense may still exist? Phil. I can, but then it must be in another mind. When I deny sensible things an existence out of the mind, I do not mean my mind in particular, but all minds. Now, it is plain they have an existence exterior to my mind, since I find them by experience to be independent of it. There is therefore some other mind wherein they exist, during the intervals between the times of my perceiving them, as likewise they did before my birth, and would do after my supposed annihilation. And, as the same is true with regard to all other finite created spirits, it necessarily follows there is an omnipresent eternal mind which knows and comprehends all things, and exhibits them to our view in such a manner, and according to such rules as he himself hath ordained, and are by us termed the laws of nature. Heil, answer me, Philonous, are all our ideas perfectly inert beings, or have they any agency included in them? Phil. They are altogether passive and inert. Heil, and is not God an agent, a being purely active? Phil, I acknowledge it. Heil, no idea therefore can be like unto, or represent the nature of God? Phil, it cannot. Heil, since therefore you have no idea of the mind of God, how can you conceive it possible that things should exist in his mind? Or, if you can conceive the mind of God, without having an idea of it, why may not I be allowed to conceive the existence of matter, notwithstanding I have no idea of it? Phil, as to your first question, I own I have properly no idea, either of God or any other spirit, for these being active cannot be represented by things perfectly inert, as our ideas are. 
I do nevertheless know that I, who am a spirit or thinking substance, exist as certainly as I know my ideas exist. Farther, I know what I mean by the terms I and myself, and I know this immediately or intuitively, though I do not perceive it as I perceive a triangle, a colour, or a sound. The mind, spirit, or soul, is that indivisible, unextended thing which thinks, acts, and perceives. I say indivisible, because unextended, and unextended, because extended, figured, movable things are ideas, and that which perceives ideas, which thinks and wills, is plainly itself no idea, nor like an idea. Ideas are things inactive, and perceived, and spirits a sort of being altogether different from them. I do not therefore say my soul is an idea, or like an idea. However, taking the word idea in a large sense, my soul may be said to furnish me with an idea, that is, an image or likeness of God, though indeed extremely inadequate. For, all the notion I have of God is obtained by reflecting on my own soul, heightening its powers, and removing its imperfections. I have, therefore, though not an inactive idea, yet in myself some sort of an active thinking image of the deity, and, though I perceive him not by sense, yet I have a notion of him, or know him by reflection and reasoning. My own mind and my own ideas I have an immediate knowledge of, and, by the help of these, do immediately apprehend the possibility of the existence of other spirits and ideas. Farther, from my own being, and from the dependency I find in myself and my ideas, I do, by an act of reason, necessarily infer the existence of a God, and of all created things in the mind of God. So much for your first question. For the second, I suppose by this time you can answer it yourself. For you neither perceive matter objectively, as you do an inactive being or idea, nor know it, as you do yourself, by a reflex act. Neither do you immediately apprehend it by similitude of the one or the other, nor yet collect it by reasoning from that which you know immediately, all which makes the case of matter widely different from that of the deity. Heil, you say your own soul supplies you with some sort of an idea or image of God, but at the same time you acknowledge you have, properly speaking, no idea of your own soul. You even affirm that spirits are a sort of beings altogether different from ideas, consequently that no idea can be like a spirit. We have, therefore, no idea of any spirit. You admit, nevertheless, that there is spiritual substance, although you have no idea of it, while you deny there can be such a thing as material substance, because you have no notion or idea of it. Is this fair dealing? To act consistently, you must either admit matter or reject spirit. What say you to this? Phil, I say, in the first place, that I do not deny the existence of material substance, merely because I have no notion of it, but because the notion of it is inconsistent, or, in other words, because it is repugnant that there should be a notion of it. Many things, for aught I know, may exist, whereof neither I nor any other man hath or can have any idea or notion whatsoever. But then those things must be possible, that is, nothing inconsistent must be included in their definition. I say, secondly, that although we believe things to exist which we do not perceive, yet we may not believe that any particular thing exists without some reason for such belief. 
but i have no reason for believing the existence of matter i have no immediate intuition thereof neither can i immediately form my sensations ideas notions actions or passions infer an unthinking unperceiving inactive substance either by probable deduction or necessary consequence whereas the being of myself that is my own soul mind or thinking principle i evidently know by reflection you will forgive me if i repeat the same thing in answer to the same objections in the very notion or definition of material substance there is included a manifest repugnance and inconsistency but this cannot be said of the notion of spirit that ideas should exist in what doth not perceive or be produced by what doth not act is repugnant but it is no repugnancy to say that a perceiving thing should be the subject of ideas or an active thing the cause of them it is granted we have neither an immediate evidence nor a demonstrative knowledge of the existence of other finite spirits but it will not thence follow that such spirits are on a foot with material substances if to suppose the one be inconsistent and it be not inconsistent to suppose the other if the one can be inferred by no argument and there is a probability for the other if we see signs and effects indicating distinct finite agents like ourselves and see no sign or symptom whatever that leads to a rational belief of matter i say lastly that i have a notion of spirit though i have not strictly speaking an idea of it i do not perceive it as an idea or by means of an idea but know it by reflection Heil, notwithstanding all you have said to me it seems that according to your own way of thinking and in consequence of your own principles it should follow that you are only a system of floating ideas without any substance to support them words are not to be used without a meaning and as there is no more meaning in spiritual substance than in material substance the one is to be exploded as well as the other phil how often must i repeat that i know or am conscious of my own being and that i myself am not my ideas but somewhat else a thinking active principle that perceives knows wills and operates about ideas i know that i one in the same self perceive both colours and sounds that a colour cannot perceive a sound nor a sound a colour that i am therefore one individual principle distinct from colour and sound and for the same reason from aft other sensible things and inert ideas but i am not in like manner conscious either of the existence or essence of matter on the contrary i know that nothing inconsistent can exist and that the existence of matter implies an inconsistency further i know what i mean when i affirm that there is a spiritual substance or support of ideas that is that a spirit knows and perceives ideas but i do not know what is meant when it is said that an unperceiving substance hath inherent in it and supports either ideas or the archetypes of ideas there is therefore upon the whole no parity of case between spirit and matter Heil, i own myself satisfied in this point but do you in earnest think the real existence of sensible things consists in their being actually perceived if so how comes it that all mankind distinguish between them ask the first man you meet and he shall tell you to be perceived is one thing and to exist is another phil i am content hylas to appeal to the common sense of the world for the truth of my notion ask the gardener why he thinks yonder cherry-tree exists in the garden and he shall tell you because he sees and feels it in a word because he perceives it by his senses ask him why he thinks an orange-tree not to be there and he shall tell you because he does not perceive it 
what he perceives by sense, that he terms a real, being, and saith it, is or exists, but, that which is not perceivable, the same, he saith, hath no being. Hyle. Yes, Philonous, I grant the existence of a sensible thing consists in being perceivable, but not in being actually perceived. Phil. And what is perceivable but an idea? And can an idea exist without being actually perceived? These are points long since agreed between us. Hyle. But, be your opinion never so true, yet surely you will not deny it is shocking, and contrary to the common sense of men. Ask the fellow whether yonder tree hath an existence out of his mind. What answer think you he would make? Phil. The same that I should myself, to wit, that it doth exist out of his mind, but, then to a Christian, it cannot surely be shocking to say, the real tree, existing without his mind, is truly known and comprehended by, bracket, that is, exists in, close bracket, the infinite mind of God. Probably he may not at first glance be aware of the direct and immediate proof there is of this, inasmuch as the very being of a tree, or any other sensible thing, implies a mind wherein it is. But the point itself he cannot deny. The question between the materialists and me is not whether things have a real existence out of the mind of this or that person, but whether they have an absolute existence, distinct from being perceived by God, and exterior to all minds. This, indeed, some heathens and philosophers have affirmed, but whoever entertains notions of the deity suitable to the holy scriptures will be of another opinion. Heil. But, according to your notions, what difference is there between real things and chimeras formed by the imagination, or the visions of a dream, since they are all equally in the mind? Phil. The ideas formed by the imagination are faint and indistinct. They have, besides, an entire dependence on the will. But the ideas perceived by sense, that is, real things, are more vivid and clear, and, being imprinted on the mind by a spirit distinct from us, have not the like dependence on our will. There is therefore no danger of confounding these with the foregoing, and there is as little of confounding them with the visions of a dream which are dim, irregular, and confused. And, though they should happen to be never so lively and natural, yet, by their not being connected, and of a piece with the preceding and subsequent transactions of our life, they might easily be distinguished from realities. In short, by whatever method you distinguish things from chimeras on your scheme, the same, it is evident, will hold also upon mine. For it must be, I presume, by some perceived difference, and I am not for depriving you of any one thing that you perceive. Hyle. But still, Philonous, you hold there is nothing in the world but spirits and ideas, and this, you must needs acknowledge, sounds very oddly. Phil. I own the word idea, not being commonly used for thing, sounds something out of the way. My reason for using it was, because a necessary relation to the mind is understood to be implied by that term, and it is now commonly used by philosophers to denote the immediate objects of the understanding. But, however oddly the proposition may sound in words, yet it includes nothing so very strange or shocking in its sense, which in effect amounts to no more than this, to wit, that there are only things perceiving, and things perceived, or that every unthinking being is necessarily, and from the very nature of its existence, perceived by some mind, if not by a finite created mind, yet certainly by the infinite mind of God, in whom, quote, we live, and move, and have our being. End quote. 
Is this as strange as to say the sensible qualities are not on the objects, or that we cannot be sure of the existence of things, or know anything of their real natures, though we both see and feel them, and perceive them by all our senses? Heil, and, in consequence of this, must we not think there are no such things as physical or corporeal causes, but that a spirit is the immediate cause of all the phenomena in nature? Can there be anything more extravagant than this? Phil, yes, it is infinitely more extravagant to say, a thing which is inert operates on the mind, and which is unperceiving is the cause of our perceptions, without any regard either to consistency or the old known axiom. Nothing can give to another that which it hath not itself. Besides, that which to you, I know not for what reason, seems so extravagant, is no more than the holy scriptures assert in a hundred places. In them God is represented as the sole and immediate author of all those effects, which some heathens and philosophers are wont to ascribe to nature, matter, fate, or the like unthinking principle. This is so much the constant language of scriptures, that it were needless to confirm it by citations. Heil. You are not aware, Philonous, that in making God the immediate author of all the motions in nature, you make him the author of murder, sacrilege, adultery, and the like heinous sins. Phil. In answer to that, I observe, first, that the imputation of guilt is the same, whether a person commits an action with or without an instrument. In case, therefore, you suppose God to act by the mediation of an instrument or occasion, called matter, you as truly make him the author of sin as I, who think him the immediate agent in all those operations vulgarly ascribed to nature. I farther observe that sin or moral turpitude doth not consist in the outward physical action or motion, but in the internal deviation of the will from the laws of reason and religion. This is plain, in that the killing an enemy in a battle, or putting a criminal legally to death, is not thought sinful, though the outward act be the very same with that in the case of murder. Since, therefore, sin doth not consist in the physical action, the making God an immediate cause of all such actions is not making him the author of sin. Lastly, I have nowhere said that God is the only agent who produces all the motions in bodies. It is true I have denied there are any other agents besides spirits, but this is very consistent with allowing to thinking rational beings, in the production of motions, the use of limited powers, ultimately indeed derived from God, but immediately under the direction of their own wills, which is sufficient to entitle them to all the guilt of their actions. Heil, but the denying matter, Philonous, or corporeal substance, there is the point. You can never persuade me that this is not repugnant to the universal sense of mankind. Were our dispute to be determined by most voices, I am confident you would give up the point, without gathering the votes. Phil, I wish both our opinions were fairly stated and submitted to the judgment of men who had plain common sense, without the prejudices of a learned education. Let me be represented as one who trusts his senses, who thinks he knows the things he sees and feels, and entertains no doubts of their existence, and you fairly set forth with all your doubts, your paradoxes, and your scepticism about you, and I shall willingly acquiesce in the determination of any indifferent person. 
that there is no substance wherein ideas can exist besides spirit is to me evident and that the objects immediately perceived are ideas is on all hands agreed and that sensible qualities are objects immediately perceived no one can deny it is therefore evident there can be no substratum of those qualities but spirit in which they exist not by way of mode or property but as a thing perceived in that which perceives it i deny therefore that there is any unthinking substratum of the objects of sense, and, in that acceptation, that there is any material substance. But if by material substance is meant only sensible body, that which is seen and felt, bracket, and the unphilosophical part of the world, I dare say, mean no more, close bracket, then I am more certain of matter's existence than you or any other philosopher pretend to be if there be anything which makes the generality of mankind averse from the notions i espouse it is a misapprehension that i deny the reality of sensible things but as it is you who are guilty of that and not i it follows that in truth their aversion is against your notions and not mine i do therefore assert that i am as certain as of my own being that there are bodies or corporeal substances bracket, meaning the things i perceive by my senses close bracket, and that granting this the bulk of mankind will take no thought about nor think themselves at all concerned in the fate of those unknown natures and philosophical quiddities which some men are so fond of Heil, what say you to this since according to you men judge of the reality of things by their senses how can a man be mistaken in thinking the moon a plain lucid surface about a foot in diameter or a square tower seen at a distance round or an oar with one end in the water crooked phil he is not mistaken with regard to the ideas he actually perceives but in the inference he makes from his present perceptions thus in the case of the oar what he immediately perceives by sight is certainly crooked and so far he is in the right but if he thence concludes that upon taking the oar out of the water he shall perceive the same crookedness or that it would affect his touch as crooked things are wont to do in that he is mistaken in like manner if he shall conclude from what he perceives in one station that in case he advances towards the moon or tower he should still be affected with the like ideas he is mistaken but his mistake lies not in what he perceives immediately and at present bracket, it being a manifest contradiction to suppose he should err in respect of that close bracket, but in the wrong judgment he makes concerning the ideas he apprehends to be connected with those immediately perceived or concerning the ideas that from what he perceives at present he imagines would be perceived in other circumstances the case is the same with regard to the copernican system we do not here perceive any motion of the earth but it were erroneous thence to conclude that in case we were placed at as great a distance from that as we are now from the other planets we should not then perceive its motion Heil, i understand you and must needs own you say things plausible enough but give me leave to put you in mind of one thing pray philonous were you not formerly as positive that matter existed as you are now that it does not phil i was but here lies the difference before my positiveness was founded without examination upon prejudice but now after inquiry upon evidence I'll, after all it seems our dispute is rather about words than things we agree in the thing but differ in the name that we are affected with ideas from without is evident and it is no less evident that there must be bracket, i will not say archetypes but 
close bracket, powers without the mind, corresponding to those ideas, and, as these powers cannot subsist by themselves, there is some subject of them necessarily to be admitted, which I call matter, and you call spirit. This is all the difference. Phil. Pray, Hylas, is that powerful being or subject of powers extended? Hyl, it hath not extension, but it hath the power to raise in you the idea of extension. Phil. It is therefore itself unextended? Hyl, I grant it. Phil, is it not also active? Hyl, without doubt. Otherwise, how could we attribute powers to it? Phil, now let me ask you two questions. First, whether it be agreeable to the usage either of philosophers or others to give the name matter to an unextended active being. And secondly, whether it be not ridiculously absurd to misapply names contrary to the common use of language. Hyle, well then, let it not be called matter, since you will have it so, but some third nature, distinct from matter and spirit. For what reason is there why you should call it spirit? Does not the notion of spirit imply that it is thinking, as well as active and unextended? Phil, my reason is this, because I have a mind to have some notion of meaning in what I say, but I have no notion of any action distinct from volition. Neither can I conceive volition to be anywhere but in spirit. Therefore, when I speak of an active being, I am obliged to mean a spirit. Beside, what can be plainer than that a thing which hath no ideas in itself cannot impart them to me, and, if it hath ideas, surely it must be a spirit. To make you comprehend the point still more clearly, if it be possible, I assert as well as you that, since we are affected from without, we must allow powers to be without, in a being distinct from ourselves. So far we are agreed, but then we differ as to the kind of this powerful being. I will have it to be spirit, you, matter, or I know not what, bracket, I may add to, you know not what, close bracket, thus I prove it to be spirit. From the effects I see produced, I conclude there are actions, and, because actions, volitions, and, because there are volitions, there must be a will. Again, the things I perceive must have an existence, they or their archetype, out of my mind, but, being ideas, neither they nor their archetypes can exist otherwise than in an understanding. There is therefore an understanding. But will and understanding constitute in the strictest sense a mind or spirit. The powerful cause, therefore, of my ideas is in strict propriety of speech a spirit. Hyle, and now I warrant you think you have made the point very clear, little suspecting that what you advance leads directly to a contradiction. Is it not an absurdity to imagine any imperfection in God? Phil, without doubt. Hyle, to suffer pain is an imperfection? Phil, it is. Hyle, are we not sometimes affected with pain and uneasiness by some other being? Phil, we are. Hyle, and have you not said that being is a spirit, and is not that spirit God? Phil, I grant it. Hyle, but you have asserted that whatever ideas we perceive from without are in the mind which affects us. The ideas, therefore, of pain and uneasiness are in God, or, in other words, God suffers pain, that is to say, there is an imperfection in the divine nature, which you acknowledge was absurd, so you are caught in a plain contradiction. Phil, that God knows or understands all things, and that he knows, among other things, what pain is, even every sort of painful sensation, and what it is for his creatures to suffer pain, I make no question. 
but that God, though he knows and sometimes causes painful sensations in us, can himself suffer pain, I positively deny. We who are limited and dependent spirits are liable to impressions of sense, the effects of an external agent, which, being produced against our wills, are sometimes painful and uneasy. But God, whom no external being can affect, perceives nothing by sense as we do, whose will is absolute and independent, causing all things, and liable to be thwarted or resisted by nothing. It is evident such a being as this can suffer nothing, nor be affected with any painful sensation, or indeed any sensation at all. We are chained to a body, that is to say, our perceptions are connected with corporeal motions, by the law of our nature. We are affected upon every alteration in the nervous parts of our sensible body, which sensible body, rightly considered, is nothing but a complexion of such qualities, or ideas as have no existence distinct from being perceived by a mind. So that this connection of sensations with corporeal motions means no more than a correspondence in the order of nature, between two sets of ideas, or things immediately perceivable. But God is a pure spirit, disengaged from all such sympathy, or natural ties. No corporeal motions are attended with the sensations of pain or pleasure in his mind. To know everything knowable is certainly a perfection, but to endure, or suffer, or feel anything by sense is an imperfection. The former, I say, agrees to God, but not the latter. God knows, or hath ideas, but his ideas are not conveyed to him by sense, as ours are. Your not distinguishing, where there is so manifest a difference, makes you fancy you see an absurdity where there is none. Heil. But, all this while you have not considered that the quantity of matter has been demonstrated to be proportioned to the gravity of bodies, and what can withstand demonstration? Phil. Let me see how you demonstrate that point. Heil. I lay it down for a principle, that the moments or quantities of motion in bodies are in a direct compound reason of the velocities and quantities of matter contained in them. Hence, where the velocities are equal, it follows the moments are directly as the quantity of matter in each. But it is found by experience that all bodies, bracket, baiting the small inequalities arising from the resistance of the air, close bracket, descend with an equal velocity. The motion, therefore, of descending bodies, and consequently their gravity, which is the cause or principle of that motion, is proportional to the quantity of matter, which was to be demonstrated. Phil. You lay it down as a self-evident principle that the quantity of motion in any body is proportional to the velocity and matter taken together, and this is made use of to prove a proposition from whence the existence of matter is inferred. Pray, is not this arguing in a circle? Heil. In the premise, I only mean that the motion is proportional to the velocity, jointly with the extension and solidity. Phil. But allowing this to be true, yet it will not thence follow that gravity is proportional to matter, in your philosophic sense of the word, except you take it for granted that unknown substratum, or whatever else you call it, is proportional to those sensible qualities, which to suppose is plainly begging the question. That there is magnitude and solidity, or resistance, perceived by sense, I readily grant. As likewise, that gravity may be proportional to those qualities, I will not dispute but that either these qualities as perceived by us or the powers producing them do exist in a material substratum this is what i deny and you indeed affirm but notwithstanding your demonstration have not yet proved Heil. i shall insist no longer on that point 
Do you think, however, you shall persuade me that the natural philosophers have been dreaming all this while? Pray, what becomes of all their hypotheses and explications of the phenomena, which suppose the existence of matter? Phil. What mean you, Hylas, by the phenomena? Hyle. I mean the appearances which I perceive by the senses. Phil. And the appearances perceived by sense, are they not ideas? Hyle. I have told you so a hundred times. Phil. Therefore, to explain the phenomena is to show how we come to be affected with ideas in that manner and order wherein they are imprinted on our senses, is it not? Hyle. It is. Phil. Now, if you can prove that any philosopher has explained the production of any one idea in our minds by the help of matter, I shall for ever acquiesce and look on all that hath been said against it as nothing. But, if you cannot, it is vain to urge the explication of phenomena. That a being endowed with the knowledge and will should produce or exhibit ideas is easily understood. But that a being which is utterly destitute of these faculties should be able to produce ideas, or in any sort to affect an intelligence, this I can never understand. This, I say, though we had some positive conception of matter, though we knew its qualities, and could comprehend its existence, would yet be so far from explaining things, that it is itself the most inexplicable thing in the world. And yet, for all this, it will not follow that philosophers have been doing nothing, for, by observing and reasoning upon the connection of ideas, they discover the laws and methods of nature, which is a part of knowledge both useful and entertaining. Hyle, after all, can it be supposed God would deceive all mankind? Do you imagine he would have induced the whole world to believe the being of matter, if there was no such thing? Phil, that every epidemical opinion, arising from prejudice or passion, or thoughtlessness, may be imputed to God, as the author of it, I believe you will not affirm. Whatsoever opinion we father on him, it must be either because he discovered it to us by supernatural revelation, or because it is so evident to our natural faculties, which were framed and given us by God, that it is impossible we should withhold our assent from it. But where is the revelation, or where is the evidence that extorts the belief of matter? Nay, how does it appear that matter, taken for something distinct from what we perceive by our senses, is thought to exist by all mankind, or indeed by any except a few philosophers, who do not know what they would be at? Your question supposes these points are clear, and, when you have cleared them, I shall think myself obliged to give you another answer. In the meantime, let it suffice that I tell you, I do not suppose God has deceived mankind at all. Hyle. But the novelty, Philonus, the novelty, there lies the danger. New notions should always be discountenanced. They unsettle men's minds, and nobody knows where they will end. Phil. Why the rejecting a notion that has no foundation, either in sense, or in reason, or in divine authority, should be thought to unsettle the belief of such opinions as are grounded on all or any of these, I cannot imagine. That innovations in government and religion are dangerous, and ought to be discountenanced, I freely own. But is there the like reason why they should be discouraged in philosophy? The making anything known which was unknown before is an innovation in knowledge, and, if all such innovations had been forbidden, men would not have made a notable progress in the arts and sciences. But it is none of my business to plead for novelties and paradoxes, that the qualities we perceive are not on the objects, that we must not believe our senses, 
that we know nothing of the real nature of things, and can never be assured even of their existence, that real colours and sounds are nothing but certain unknown figures and motions, that motions are in themselves neither swift nor slow, that there are in bodies absolute extensions, without any particular magnitude or figure, that a thing stupid, thoughtless, and inactive operates on a spirit, that the least particle of a body contains innumerable extended parts. These are the novelties, these are the strange notions which shock the genuine, uncorrupted judgment of all mankind, and being once admitted, embarrass the mind with endless doubts and difficulties, and it is against these, and like innovations, I endeavour to vindicate common sense. It is true, in doing this, I may perhaps be obliged to use some ambages, and ways of speech not common. But, if my notions are once thoroughly understood, that which is most singular in them will, in effect, be found to amount to no more than this, that it is absolutely impossible, and a plain contradiction, to suppose that any unthinking being should exist without being perceived by a mind. And, if this notion be singular, it is a shame it should be so, at this time of day, and in a Christian country. End of section 5 Recording by Geoffrey Edwards